hello friends in podcast land, welcome back. My guest today is Richard Shotton, longtime Modern Wisdom favourite, and we're talking about one of my most delightful topics, which is behavioural economics, consumer behaviour, advertising, psychology, and all that good stuff. So today, expect to learn how you can tell somebody's mood by the movement of their mouse, why the end of an experience is the most important what Richard thinks makes the perfect advert, how you can increase workplace safety with skeleton gloves, why the British press might have got social change messages wrong with what they've been publishing, and so much more. This is one of my favourite ever episodes that I've recorded, and that is a big shout now, two and a half years in. You're going to absolutely love it. I would love to hear what you think. So you know where to get at me. Chris Will X on all social media, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you follow me. In more news, I'm doing three episodes a week. Usually it's just Monday and Thursday, but I'm recording so much during quarantine lockdown that I'm just getting backed up. So you lucky, lucky devils, you're going to get three episodes this week. Dave Rubin is coming on this Thursday to discuss his new book, Don't Burn This Book. And Saturday, I haven't decided who it is yet, but I have a huge library of episodes to dig into. So you will get Monday, Thursday and Saturday for the next couple of weeks until we work through this backlog. Final thing, please hit the subscribe button. You already know that it makes me very happy indeed. So if you are new here, if you're a long-time subscriber and you haven't done it, go ahead and hit it. You don't want to miss any of the episodes that we've got coming up. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Things that you used to do in a day are taking a week. You're drowning so much, you've now promoted your dog from company mascot to customer service representative. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 37,025 and 1. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, that is the 25th year anniversary of NetSuite. 25 years of helping businesses to do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system. With one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash modern. That's netsuite.com slash modern to get your own KPI checklist today. This episode is brought to you by Crafted London. Finding men's jewellery that doesn't suck is very difficult and Crafted London have nailed it. They're the number one men's jewellery company worldwide. They're sweatproof, waterproof, heatproof, and gym-proof. They've got custom designs in gold and silver, necklaces, chains, pendants, bracelets, rings, and earrings. If you've seen me on any of the big cinema episodes on YouTube wearing a necklace, it will always be from Crafted. I absolutely love it. It works with formal wear, casual wear, whether it's daytime or nighttime. All of the pieces are super high quality. The designs are great, and uh, I love them. That's It's all I wear. Also, they have an unlimited lifetime guarantee so if your piece breaks for any reason at any point during the entire life of the product they will give you a new one for free get a 15 percent discount site-wide on everything by going to bit.ly slash cd wisdom and using the code mw15 at checkout that's bit.ly slash letter c letter d wisdom and mw15 at checkout If you want more focus in your life, or if you find yourself dealing with an energy slump in the middle of the day where you just don't have the motivation to stay productive, fear not, because I do too. 
which is why I spent more than a year creating the world's first productivity energy drink, Newtonic. Honestly, I'm so proud of this. I was involved in the design stage from the very beginning, and we made sure to only include the most heavily researched and evidence-based ingredients in the world at efficacious doses to create the most potent fuel for your focus ever made. It uses a science-backed formula of nootropic ingredients, including cognizin for focus, panax ginseng to reduce distractions, and L-theanine to remove any jitters and keep you feeling great. We've got thousands of five-star reviews, and you can see exactly why by trying it for yourself right now with free next-day delivery on Amazon Prime in the UK and the USA. Simply head to newtonic.com slash modernwisdom. That's N-E-U-T-O-N-I-C dot com slash modernwisdom. But for now, it's time for the wise and wonderful Richard Shotton. My mum still does my washing. I pay her every week to do my washing. Oh, um, yeah. uh, but the problem is, obviously, with the new essential travel-only lockdown, yeah. I can't see her. So the first thing that she said after Boris's announcement wasn't, are you okay? What's business going to be like? It's, do you know how to work the washing machine? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, look, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back the crowd goes crazy for Richard Shotton's return to modern wisdom. How are you, mate? Very good, thanks. Very good. Pleasure to have you on. I cannot wait for today. First things first, Richard, did you know that sex toy sales have increased by 71% in Italy? <laughs> no, I did not. That's amazing. For, for every crisis, someone, someone's winning. Excellent. That's it. Everyone's yeah. talking about what's going to happen to the price of oil, what's going to happen to the price of gold. No one's talking about what's happening to the price of silicon, are they? <laughs> no. It's a tradable commodity. Um, I, I said I was going to tell you as well about uh, gangs in Rio de Janeiro. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. yes. So, uh, to the listeners, uh, this is not going to be... COVID-19 focused, I promise you, we're going to give you some awesome insights into advertising and marketing, but it's too topical not to drop this. So gangs in the favelas in Rio uh, enforced a lockdown from 8 p.m. every night, and they put a statement out on a website. Don't know if it's their website. uh, And the statement reads, if the government won't do the right thing, organized crime will. <laughs> I've seen that. I just thought, how amazing that you've got a place where typically the the gangs are the people that have more control than the police on the negative side, and now they're just stepping in to enforce a lockdown. Yes, I mean, I imagine there's yeah some self interest there of what, if uh, something spreads in a favela, presumably it goes like wildfire and so close together. But Absolutely. that's uh, yeah, I hadn't seen that at all. Missed that completely. Mm. Yeah, I know. So look, we're we're talking today. We're going to mm. talk advertising. We're going to talk a lot of other stuff. My first question I've got for you is: How do you create the perfect advert? No small question. No small question. Um, well, on one hand, you could say that it's something that's impossible to create a formula for now that's not just a complete evasion of the question it's the idea that probably the biggest task an advert has is to be noticed and because if you haven't noticed everything else is is irrelevant and 
one of the things we know from psychology is that what is distinctive is far more likely to be noticed. We're hardwired to notice what is what is distinctive. Now, with all of psychology, that's not just speculation on my part. There is a lovely set of experiments. There's a lovely set of experiments uh, under the name of either the isolation effect or the von Restorff effect. So it's called the von Restorff effect because there was a paediatrician psychologist in the 1930s called Hedwig von Restorff. Uh, and in 1933, she has a classic experiment. She gives people a long list of information. Sometimes there might be, um, so on every line, there's three digits. Sometimes that might be letters, A, B, Y, uh, next line, S, J, Q, third line, C, B, Y. And then every so often she throws in three numbers, one, six, four, and then she goes back to her letters again. She gives people five minutes to look at this long list of information, tries to get them to remember as much as possible, takes that list away, and then sees what people can recall. And her key finding is that if you give people long lists of letters, they're most likely to remember the rare numbers. If you give people long lists of numbers, they're most likely to remember the rare letters. So why I say you can't really have a formula is if you have a formula and everyone adopts it, that formula becomes defunct. What you actually need to do is find out what is the formula, wrong or right, that everyone in your category is using. What are the category norms? And virtual categories will have uh, some some quite specific norms of behavior find out what those norms are and then well you probably want to list out all those norms which ones do you have to adhere to because there's a very good reason which ones are there for tradition's sake alone and those are the ones that you want to to break i love it yeah and if you, well, if you and also if you look through a lot of categories you see these very specific uh ways of behavior so uh, there's a wonderful Twitter ad, a uh, Twitter handle called, I think something like perfume ads for sale. And it's just these increasingly surreal scripts, you know, about David Beckham being in a court, a leg of ham falling through the sky and he shouts out <laughs> guilty. And they only work because everyone knows that's the kind of uh, ridiculous overblown uh, motifs that happen in perfume ads. Or you've got the car ads where they, you know, beautiful car going around the corner. Lots and lots of categories have very fixed ways of behaving. The best thing to do is probably understand what those norms are and then and then break them. Yeah, I remember seeing you tweet an article that you did for Marketing Week. Nine percent of digital ads are looked at for more than a second. So ninety-one percent of digital ads are looked at for less than a second. Yes, I think that data. I'm trying to remember that was uh, a wonderful eye tracking company uh, that Mike Follett runs called Lumen. So it's lovely data in the. Uh, they've created this great technology that gets embedded in people's computers and it essentially tracks where their eyes look. So it's quite a robust finding that the average time people look at ads is a, is a, is, is a fraction. So I think from that, you've got a couple of points. You've got, well, distinctiveness is a tactic to be noticed. Secondly, placement is hugely important and it's a metric that a lot of programmatic training doesn't take into account. What's that mean? Oh, so, so, so programmatic is just um, automated trading. So you go and look at a website, and this is an M my area speciality, but if you're looking at a website, um, the site has certain data on you. you know, it might know that you're a bloke. It might know you're in your 20s, your 30s, and then it will auction the ads that you see to various parties. 
And programmatic is essentially people just bidding for how much they think you're worth. Mm. Um, but that takes into account a lot of data about you. What that study by Lumen shows is that actually where the ad appears is very important. The longer someone spends reading an article, the longer they end up looking at the ads for. Uh, not a factor of the ad itself, but just a factor if you're on the site, there's a greater probability the ad will catch your attention. So actually, there's quite a powerful argument that things like news websites where people will spend, you know, I don't know a minute on an article are much more valuable than eBay where it might just be you know, speculating. I can't remember if it was eBay, mm-hmm, it was good mm-hmm. or bad, actually. But you might sites where people were just on for a, for a second or two. So, yeah, some, some lovely, lovely research about that. Yeah, it's much But important to... Much more transient, isn't it? Some websites, you know, you're flicking through stuff. I imagine, I always think uh, how terrible the conversions must be on Tinder adverts. You know, everyone's just swiping as fast as they can in any case. Like, don't give me an advert that's going to be up there. Like, that's not going to be on screen. That's, I bet the, the stats for, for Tinder ads are pretty, pretty brutal. Well, there's also, uh, I mean, it depends what the kind of the experience is like as well. There's, there's a lovely body of work all around mood. And I guess it depends how successful you are on Tinder. But uh, if people are unsuccessful and they're in a bad mood, there's an awful lot of evidence showing that, again, going back to noticeability, people are much less likely to notice ads. So there was a study done by Fred Bronner at the University of Amsterdam. And he got more than a thousand people, gets them to flick through a, a newspaper. And after they've done so, he asked them, whether they're in a good mood or they're in a bad mood, they were relaxed or stressed. And then he gets them to try and recall as many ads as they can. And what he found was that people were much more likely to notice the ads when they were in a good mood rather than a bad mood. Now, what I love about behavioral science is that you don't have to, you know, you don't have to take his work on faith alone. You know, you don't just have to believe it and, you know, you either believe it or you don't. The great thing about all these studies is all the research is in the public domain. So you can take his idea with a few tweaks, rerun it for yourself to see if it works for your brand or your particular problem. So a colleague and I reran his study, but not interested in noticeability. We were interested in likability. So we did exactly the same thing. We showed people loads of car and taxi ads got them to rate how much they liked the creative, and then we cut the data by people's mood. And we saw huge swings. You know, people were rating the ads as more likable. I think it was about a 50% swing. They were rating it as more likable when they're in a good mood rather than bad. Um, And it sounds a bit bizarre at at first, but I think there's a a couple of explanations. There's, um, uh, There's an argument from Daniel Kahneman, so Nobel Prize winner back in 2002, he says that for most of there's an evolutionary point, he says that for most of our evolutionary history, uh, if we were in a good mood, it signaled an absence of danger and therefore it mitigated the need to think critically. So if you're an advertiser, having an uncritical accepting audience is probably a pretty important thing. And then I think there's a, there's a, there's a second part of you know, if you're in a bad mood and you see an ad with the price and the benefits, well, you probably put a bit more weight on the the downside and the price and the opportunity cost. Whereas if you're in a good mood and you're optimistic, you probably focus on the the, the, the more positive parts. 
And it's again, it's something that just never really gets discussed amongst brands and media agencies. But there's a whole body of work that suggests this targeting by mood or at least um, weighting of mood should, should, should be far more important. Yeah, well, you've all been there, right? You've all been in a car where you've had a crap morning, you spilled your coffee down yourself, you rushed, you're late for work, someone cuts you off. And that person on a Sunday afternoon as you were just chilling out, coming back from a struggle yeah. with the kids, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have thought twice about it, but they are your worst enemy on the planet on that Tuesday, grey Tuesday morning with coffee down your shirt. Um, so <clears throat> what's the implication there mm. for brands and advertising campaigns? Is it that they need to be hyper-conscious of the medium of delivery, the timing of delivery, stuff like that? Because you can write the best, by, by your argument there, you can write the best copy, beautiful advert, wonderful idea. And if you get it wrong, timing-wise, people's uh, yeah. mood, you've fucked 50% of the time, maybe. So, well... I I think there's probably two implications. You, you could. The great thing with uh, behavioural science, I think that, uh, and this is an analogy that Roy Southern's made, is, is it's not like physics. He says it's not that you know in physics the opposite of a good idea is a bad idea. What Rory Southern says is that in behavioural science and psychology, people are so complex and nuanced that the opposite of a good idea could be another good idea. So what's interesting about that mood point? I think you could take that in two very different ways. One implication, and this is where I defaulting because my background is in, in this area is, is, is as you say well you should put more emphasis on reaching people in a positive mood now with existing technology you can uh, do that to a degree it's a bit crude but you can do it there are a lot of studies like the ipa touch points um diaries and time diaries which show that people are much more likely to be in a good mood in the evenings and in the mornings on fridays and saturdays than they are on mondays and tuesdays so you, you've got some crude ways of reaching people by time of day you've probably got some slightly more accurate ways you could reach people during comedy shows or in the cinema rather than on the tube um there are potential much more accurate ways of targeting mood coming uh, down the line there was a study done by um his name escapes me is it brigham young university um i'll think of it halfway through the show um uh there's and, and, and this study looks at people's um, uh, mouse movement uh, so, so, yeah, on their computer. And, and what he showed was that you can tell someone's mood by the smoothness of their mouth. No way. So it, well, if the curse is moving very smoothly and, and evenly, people tend to, you know, it's a signifier that people are probably in a good mood. If it's moving in a more jagged, hurried way, signify that they're in a, in a bad mood. So if he's correct, I think it might have been Jeff Jenkins, but have to double check that one um if he's correct well it's not too hard therefore technologically to start serving ads dependent on on how the mouse is moving across 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 the page wow. so rather than reaching people with the propensity to be in a good mood i think that might be a much more accurate way that's so but, cool but then the other angle could be you could, take, you could forget about the medium and, and prioritize the creative you could say well we have the ability you know to put people in a good mood through uh, likable characters like the meerkat, uh, humorous jokes like the Economist ads. You know that there are ways for the creative to put people in that that positive mood, and then we can harness the benefit. You uh, and a, create your own environment. You become the precursor yeah, to your own yeah. message. Yes, and you've probably got that's probably got greater 
potential than the medium argument because the problem with a lot of these media arguments is you might squeeze out an extra five or ten percent efficiency from mood targeting but most sites well you'll either have to pay a technology provider to get that data to do the targeting or you're asking for um kind of a specific subset of a media owner's audience and they'll probably charge you for that so you've got to make sure the uplifting your performance from the cycle tuning site outweighs the uh, increase in cost the great thing about the you know, creative argument is it's far easier probably to make it work, work financially mm. so to make a good advert we need to get noticed first and foremost that was that that's if yes. we're not if we're not noticed everything's pointless yeah. and you you had a great point about this where you said a lot of advertisers and marketers focus on the second step optimization of perfecting the ad rather than just getting noticed yes uh there's a lovely uh quote from dave trop so wonderful uh blogger on advertising amazing creative um and he says something like the most important line uh, that should appear on every brief never does. And that is this advert must be noticed and remembered. And he says the fact that he's never seen that on a brief in his life suggests that marketers take noticeability for, for granted. And I, and I think he's right. I mean, I've never, no one's ever fixates on that problem. It's always about the conveyance of the attributes of, of, of a brand. There should be more um, focus on, on noticeability. Mm. Okay. So I mean, the other we've, we've, we've got ourselves noticed. We've got, we've, we've, yes. we've, we've bypassed that first. What are we doing next? Yeah. Well, well, this is a kind of a hybrid because the great thing about the, about the solutions being noticed also has implications for what people think about your brand. So there's a, so we've said one of the ways to get noticed and there are others, you know, personalization and things, but distinctiveness is, is, a, is a really powerful one. The brilliant thing with that is there's an idea called the red sneaker effect um by francesca gino and, and some other colleagues that suggests that and it begins with her work i think was originally with people it suggests that people who break social norms are seen as higher status so her original experiment um was run at academic conferences so i think this was early 2000 when there was a very strong norm what people were expected to do was turn up in kind of business attire uh shirts and jacket for, for blokes so what she does is as people attend these conferences she's sitting there and she's noting down how well dressed they are from very scruffy to very smart once she's got all this all this data she then goes and finds the people whose dress code is allocated on her little chart she then goes and asks them how many citations they've got so a citation is an academic's kind of quantification. It's a bit of a crude one, but a quantification for how successful they are. How many times has their work been quoted by other people? And what she finds is that there is a inverse correlation between smartness of dress and number of citations. So it is the very successful academics who are turning up very scruffily, who are breaking all the norms about dress. And once you start thinking about it, it becomes, you know, I think very believable that, you know, if you're the intern and you turn up to work and you're dressed very scruffily, you'll get told to send home. If you're the CEO or if you're the you know, rock star academic and you turn up looking like a mess, well, everyone will just Nassim put it down. Nassim Taleb to your can kind of wear whatever he wants. Rory Sutherland can wear yes, whatever he yes, wants, yes. can't he? 
yeah, yeah. I mean, well, yes, exactly. Uh, I mean, he's he's dressed of cravats and waistcoats. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely distinctiveness in an in an ad agency. Yeah. Absolutely. Whereas if even well, twenty year old doing that might people might just think you know it's a lunatic. Um, so yes, yeah, no, no, wonderful example. And, and and what she argues is firstly that it's only people of high status that can do this, and then she shows in other experiments that people are remarkably attuned to it. So if they see you breaking a norm, they then take out higher status from it. So, and this is then a bit of a leap. That's Her stuff is about people. So I'm making a bit of a leap to brands, and I'm doing some research at the moment to try and see if this, this works. But arguably, if consumers are aware of the category norms and you radically deviate from them, perhaps in the same way as people will get um, perceived higher status, so will so will the brands. So I, think, I love distinctiveness, one, because it gets around the noticeability problem, but it's also uh, conveying some of the, the positive um, attributes of a brand. Signaling. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, sorry, so that, that was a little bit of a, a fudge, so a little bit of a hybrid. I don't, I don't want to miss that bit out. But the, so that second part, so you've got attention. Mm-hmm. The next thing you want to be uh, achieving is memorability. And there are some lovely studies from academics around this as well. And um, one of my favorites is this idea called the generation effect. So do you remember the cancer research ad? Either the end of 2018, maybe mid-2019. So it was talking about the second biggest cause of cancer is OB blank S blank TY. Yes, yes, I do. Yes. Obesity. Now, there was a big hoo-ha about that, and there was debate about whether it's fat shame or not. And unfortunately, because of that uh, significant debate, what got lost was they were using a really clever tactic to get people to remember their core point. And that tactic is the generation effect. So the agency, and I think it might have been an anomaly, I'm not 100% sure, they used an experiment from 1978 by uh, Graf and Slameka um, called the generation effect. And, and, and what they essentially did is not quite this, but uh, very similar. They would give people lists of words so let's say you get a list of well one group gets a list of animals fish dog weasel cat <laughs> elephant yep. they try and remember as, uh they're given this list with von restorf people have to remember as much as they can next group get the same list of animals but rather than being written out in full just like with that cancer research ad you don't see fish f-i-s-h you see f blank s-h People are given the same amount of time with that list of words. They get the list of words taken away from them, and then they have to recall as much as they can. And people were 14, they remembered 14% more words in that second condition when they had to uh, generate the answers themselves. And what uh, Graf and Slomeka argued was that if you just give people a list of information, they process it too quickly, too easily, that it just kind of washes over them. If you put in a tiny little bit of friction, if you make them generate the answer, the brain has to process some of that information, it becomes more memorable. You know, I think maybe teachers 
push this more than advertise you know don't just read your textbooks write mm-hmm. stuff down uh quiz yourself and all that sort of stuff so you've got this interesting technique for uh, generating better recall the generation effect you there are some examples like cancer research like j and b um whiskey of very literal interpretations that add mm-hmm. you know having blanks in the copy to make people remember it all well and good but you can probably only do it once or twice without it uh, looking a bit weird. It becomes the new norm as well, well then, right? Yeah, well, well, well potentially there is that as well. <laughs> um, but what I think with all these biases that we discuss is that where they are most powerful is in when people don't think of behavioural science as the end in itself. Where you get, you get the best strength is applying the creativity of you know, a marketer's mind and the insights from behavioural science. And if people interpret these findings much more laterally, I think that's when you get the bigger impact. So by laterally, I would argue some of the best bits of copy apply the generation effect, not by removing letters, but by giving people small puzzles. So the famous economist ad by David Abbott, AMV, uh, I don't read the economist, uh, management trainee age 42. I think that's a lateral interpretation of the generation effect. He didn't go out and say people who read people who don't read the Economist are unsuccessful. They gave they gave you a little bit of a puzzle. You had to work that out for yourself. Therefore, it becomes a bit more memorable. So that would be one uh, tactic for memorability. I, I love that. I had um, Robin Dreek, a, a negotiator for the FBI. I had him on the podcast a little while ago. And what he said was that one tool which is used by um, FBI agents who are trying to recruit assets if they want to try and get information out of them is rather than – so let's say I want to get your date of birth. I might say to you, I bet I can tell what horoscope. You're you're, you're Pisces, right? And you go, no, 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 I'm not. I'm Aries. And you yeah. go, oh, okay, yeah, <laughs> what, 1985? No, 1984. And you're like, you, you yeah. have this desire to fill in the gap, right? So there's part of that, which it's playing on. Uh, also, Philip C. Brown, the guy who wrote, uh, oh, I'm going to get this wrong. I think it's Make It Stick. I had him on the podcast about two years ago now. Uh, and his synopsis of an entire lifetime learning how people learn is it doesn't matter about repeated exposure it matters about repeated recall so the Feynman technique uses this right it's learn your thing then teach it to a four-year-old it doesn't matter how many times you get exposed to something it's how many times you're forced to recall that from memory and if you think about Ah. the obesity advert you've got kind of at the edges of both of those things those mechanisms going on there that someone thinks i want to i want to complete that because the Zyganic effect says we want to close the loop. I don't like the yes, fact yes, that this word yeah. is uncompleted yeah. up there. Uh, yeah. And then there's also this side of it that, as you touched on, having to force people to pull some cognitive power out. They've had to deploy, you know, that's more work than some people will have done speaking to their spouse in the morning. Um, Hi, darling, how are you? Yes, good, bye, thanks. Like that, you know, that's just the the classic yeah. morning, morning orange juice ch- chat. Um, and yeah, by by doing that, I think you'll have, the repeated recall, I think you'll have got that as well. So, so I like the uh, point of the, your two examples were teaching and uh, negotiation. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if sometimes advertising is in danger of looking to inspiration always from other advertisers, you know, flicking through awards, 
journals. And actually, maybe people like teachers who are all about the passing information, getting people to remember things, you could probably get a very different set of inspiration. Again, you know, going back to the point of distinctiveness, you, you don't want to be learning the same things as, as your competitors. Yeah, I agree. Um, okay, so we've got, we've got distinctiveness. We've talked about some different ideas for that. How can yeah. I work on my creativity uh, and not just rehash new versions of my old ideas? What are some ways for me to kind of bolster my creativity when I'm looking for new things in my adverts and new ways to, to come up with ideas? Well, this is moving away from my speciality because I, I don't, don't write ads, so um, uh, moving away from my speciality. But I would argue there's that one sense of having a different set of, set of inspiration from other people. Uh, one area that I have done research on is maybe the danger of who we're trying to appeal to when we're creating adverts. So you know, we, we've had we've talked we've talked about the generation effect as being a way to um, create memories, improve the probability of recall. Another tactic that does that is something called the the Keats heuristic. So it's an idea from uh, I think it's Matthew McGlone and Jessica, and I'll, sorry, I don't know how to pronounce her surname, Topic Bash, I think. And what they did, so it's called the Keats heuristic because it's, and it's the idea that we find phrases that rhyme more believable than non-rhyming phrases. <laughs> and what, the, so yeah, uh, I wasn't particularly uh, a strong believer in this when I first read it, but they have a lovely experiment. So what they do is they, get two groups of people uh first group are given a list of kind of fake proverbs and it was something like you know what you, the first word might be or the first proverb might be woes unite foes and there'd be a, another proverb the other group see uh the same proverb but written in an unrhyming way so woes unite enemies so they'll they'll have this you know, list of 10 proverbs say some rhyme, some don't rhyme. And then the other group have the, the, the mirror image. They then say to people, how true do you think this, um, this, uh, the, the, these proverbs are, and they rate them on a, on a scale. And, uh, what they find is that when people have seen the rhyming version, if they can compare it, the results of the group with the non-rhyming version, the rhyming proverbs are seen as significantly more, believable now interesting interestingly at the end they ask people directly why did you believe this proverb or not does it have anything to do with the rhyme <laughs> everyone swears blind that it's the content that they think it's nothing to do with everyone says there's nothing to do with the rhyme so if you ask people directly they send you off completely the wrong uh, direction but if you do this wonderful test and control approach you, you start to see uh the, the the power of uh rhymes and they argue i think that we often we often confuse uh mental fluency you know uh, with with truthfulness now i then took that again this lovely way of, with behavioral science you can take these experiments and rerun them for your own ends we did exactly the same study but this time we gave people the lists of proverbs in the morning and then rather than ask them whether they believe them or not, we got them to try and remember them in the afternoon. Mm. And this was amongst uh, colleagues. So, you know, dubious robustness. But I think our memory is probably something that is true for uh, ad agency staff as much as anyone else. 
and what we found is that people were, I think, about tw- two times more likely to remember the rhyming phrase than the non-rhyming version. Now, what's interesting with this is that does believability and noticeability, two massively important things for adverts, having a rhyming strap line. But if you go to um, look at historic collections of adverts, and I went and did this, I went to the News International uh, archives. So with a colleague, we went all the way back to the 70s, looked at hundreds and hundreds of newspapers and ads. And what we saw was a really clear pattern, whereas in the 1970s, loads of ads had a rhyming strap line. By the noughties and the 2010s, it was down to a handful. It was five or 10%. You know, all those great things like once you pop, you can't stop, Pringles, Don't Be Vague, Adora Cura. You know, these are all 20, 30, 40, 70 years old. They're completely fallen out of fashion. Now, we've got that's fascinating in that you've got all this recent evidence that rhyming phrases are memorable and believable yet they are used less and less and less. And I think that can only be explained by the, um, the mixed motivations of marketers and creatives. Now, I would argue that their rhymes aren't used as much as they should because they have fallen out of fashion in the marketing circle. They're uncool, aren't they? Yeah. It's, exactly. But they're uncool to your fellow professional. And who cares what your fellow professional thinks in terms of sales? Apparently everyone. They're, yeah, they're exactly that. But, but, well, sorry, you, they shouldn't care, but absolutely yeah, yeah, right, yeah, they yeah. do. Uh, because if you, yeah, exactly, if you want to signal your professional expertise, a rhyme does not do that. You know, use of cutting edge techniques does that, or, or something that is probably very abstruse does that. But that's not our, you know, as marketers, our core role. So I think one big, going back to the original point, one big pitfall of is to advertise to our peers rather than advertise to our our customers and that i think happens far more than than people admit yeah i i got a sense of this during our last conversation and i also got this when speaking to rory he's a big proponent of the fact that people in advertising agencies a lot of the time would sooner come up with uh, an advert which failed but was r- not risk-taking and liked by their superiors than one which sometimes actually was more successful with the market but ha- adds risk onto their back. Because if you decide to forge the new path yes. with with yeah. your adventurous advert and it doesn't go well, you never have the... But it's it, it's just like... Look at the look at the, the lineage of of things that we've got behind yes. us. It was it was always yeah. going to work. How did it not work? We followed the formula. Absolutely. So it's this wonderful thing of um, like risk. If you say is being distinctive and uh, risky for a brand, no, it's not because it gives you the greatest probability of success. Is it risky for the individual involved? Absolutely. <laughs> you know your point <laughs> spot on about this lineage. You know if you are a beer brand and you decide to sponsor a table tennis team and it goes horribly wrong and all ads and all sponsorships can, then you'll end up getting fired because you haven't got that body of work to show it's a sensible decision. If you decide to sponsor a football team like every other football uh, brand, uh, beer brand does when it goes wrong you can say oh well it wasn't a stupid idea bud do it carling do it so and so do it so i think i think you're absolutely right there is a there's a misalignment of motivations between the what's often called the agent the employee or the marketer 
and the principal, that is the brand or the, or the shareholders. And that principal agent problem explains an awful lot of bizarre decision making on the part of brands. Why so few are distinctive? Why so few um, admit flaws and platform mistake? Why so few uh, adopt rhymes? Yeah, this, this mismatch of motivations, I think, explains an awful lot. I love it, man. I think there's some really good, a real good framework there for people to begin to look at how they're, how they're planning their advertising campaigns. We are going to do a new section, which I'm very excited for, which is called What Phrases Do You oh, Hate excellent. Most in Marketing? I'm going to go, I'm going to go first. Yeah. Number one phrase that I hate in marketing is pivot. Pivot. Yeah. <laughs> You know, we're just going to pivot. We're just going to, yeah, we're going to pivot the brand direction. When you, we've really thought recently we sat down, we had a bow wow, and we we realized that we're actually going to pivot a little bit on the, oh man, wow, it really, really, really gets me. So uh, I think that is symptomatic of a lot of marketing language that is over complex. I mean, as far as I know, pivot just means we're going to change direction. Mm There's a wonderful study done by a guy called Daniel Oppenheimer uh, um, at Princeton, and it's got the best ever title for his uh, research paper. It's something like the utilization of erudite vernacular, irrespective of necessity. <laughs> or uh, using long words needlessly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and what he does, because uh, that's the full title, you know, it's, it's yeah, both yeah. parts. Um, and what he does is he gets abstracts of other academic papers, and these are often thick with jargon, like marketing uh, writing. He shows those abstracts to people, and then he says, How intelligent do you think the author of this abstract is? And then in his other version, he shows another group of people in the test version, the same abstracts, but he has changed the complex language for simpler language. And when those people rate the intelligence of the author, they think the author is more intelligent. So you've got this bizarre situation in which marketers and academics are using this overblown language in the hope of appearing intelligent but actually what the listener takes out is a lack of intelligence so it's far far better to speak plainly and 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 simply what's that einstein quote it is the mark of a genius to explain a complex thing in a simple way is the mark of a charlatan to explain a simple thing in a complex way oh go on say that again uh it is the mark of a genius to explain a complex thing in a simple way, it is the mark oh, of a charlatan yeah. to explain a uh, recorder. You don't need to write it down, Richard. The whole thing oh, okay, is really recorded. Um, the, only, okay, so, the only thing I'm dubious about that quote yeah. is the attribution. Oh, there's this, no way that Einstein yeah. said that. I mean, what was he doing yeah. thinking about explaining <laughs> yeah. shit? He's doing quantum physics. Yeah. Right, uh, what phrase do you hate but, most? Oh, but, well, before we start, the last one, before, uh, there's a lovely phrase called Churchillian drift. So it's this idea <laughs> that someone who isn't very famous says something amazing, yeah. and then it gradually just gets attributed to more and more famous <laughs> people. And it ends up with Churchill, Einstein, or Mark Twain. So if people are interested in the genuine attribution, there's an amazing website called Quote Investigator. You put the um, uh, quote in, and it has this lovely like half a page on who first said it, where it came no, from. It's brilliant. It's like yeah. Ancestry.com, but for a quote. Ooh, for a quote, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, that's similar uh, to, uh, I think it's, um, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, therefore, is not an act, but a habit. And everyone attributes that 
to Aristotle. Oh, okay, okay. To Aristotle, but it's just not him at all. And there's okay. this huge medium post, which is on the same thing, oh. which is, I don't know, would you call it, um, what's that word when you see where uh, where words have come from? What's the, the body of oh, work called? Oh, it's etymology? Et- yeah, it's etymology. It's, like, the, it's like that, but it's a... The, the movement of a quote. Okay, so what? Yeah. let's give us, give us a phrase that you hate. Okay, uh, so the one at the moment that I most hate, and there's quite a few in marketing that I hate, is um, trust crisis. Okay. So I've seen this more and more again, article after article. You know, some very respected um, titles and, 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 and bodies where they're talking about the crisis in trust, that people trust brands less than they ever have ever done. The problem with this is although it gets repeated again and again in articles and and presentations, there is no evidence for it. It is amazing. It's how a um, a piece of fake information can just spread. So I spent a little bit of time looking at this. There are three um, long-term trackers of how much people uh, trust organizations. So there's Edelman data. Now, if you just read the Edelman reports into trust, you could often come away with the impression that we are in a trust crisis. If you print out the data tables from every one of their 30 reports and you print them out and you plot them, what you see is that trust in brands or businesses you know, bounces around uh, from year to year, but it's essentially flat or slightly rising. Um, the other one is... I think it's um, Ipsos Mori. They've got something called the, it's the, I think the Veracity Index. And it looks at trust in professions. And they've studied 20 or 30 professions over the, I think it's back to the early 1980s. And again, they are, trust in professions is either flat or rising. Uh, I think the only profession that is in massive decline is the church. And that has very specific reasons. And then the third body of evidence that people use for this trust crisis is the AA, so the Advertising Association. And what they've done is is this weird sleight of hand in that the evidence that they have is that favorability towards advertising is dropping. And they show that over about, I think it's about 20 years. So you see see this kind of long drop in uh, favorability towards advertising and then like last eight or 10 years, it's flattened out. When they show trust, which they've only measured for about 10 years, they say, well, trust data, which is pretty flat, maybe a very small decline, that correlates with favorability. And because favorability is down over 20 years, well, there must be a trust crisis. So you've either got Edelman's data, which shows trust is increasing, but often the reporting around it suggests that there's a crisis because what often happens is because those numbers are bouncing around if you would just select certain time periods by picking which data set you compare you can create a a, a drop so you've got that data being misused then you've got the ipsos mori date which is brilliant but when journalists report it they'll often pick the one profession that that year happens to have dropped Mm. And then you've got this AA data, which really shows a very different story about favorability towards ads declining. So there's no evidence that trust is dropping. And that creates a problem because it ends up with the 
wrong solutions. Um, if you think trust is in crisis, as in it's lower than it's ever been, you need a new solution to solve it. If you think trust in brands and advertisers is low, but it's always been low, which is what the evidence suggests, well, then you can turn to tried and trusted techniques that brands have used in the past. And again, there are lots of ideas from psychology about how you can build trust in a brand. You know, make big public pronouncements. Don't do digital target advertising. The more public a statement, the more believable it is. And I've done some research on that. Um, make people feel that you've put a huge amount of money behind your campaign. There's an idea called costly signaling that uh, the believability of a message rises with its perceived expense. So extravagant advertising, unnecessary white space, long second links, um, great creative feats or boost the believability of an ad um even the, you know the, the media context you know running in the the times has a very different feel from running in the star so i hate that phrase because it's not true yet it <laughs> mindlessly gets passed from one person to another and it it has a danger um we, it leads us this phrase leads us to the wrong solution the solutions the tried and trust solutions are out there but we're ignoring them because we think we're in this kind of unique period of a lack of trust. That's so good. Uh, some other ones, which I hate, some other words, yeah, sorry, which yeah. I hate. Uh, I hate content. I just hate the term content. I'm so sick of content. I can't wait for it to be something else. Uh, are we creating content? Are we driving content? I mean, this is how bad it was that even when I was on Love Island and I walked through the doors of, of <laughs> season one of Love Island and the producers were in the villa talking about right guys i know that you all just want to chill out and have a chat about the day but yeah. we, we we just haven't we haven't driven quite enough content for the day so we just i'm thinking this I, i'm not recording fucking instagram stories here like this is just <laughs> supposed to be my life like yeah. if i yeah. want to go and talk about my day that is the content the fact that as far as you're concerned yeah. and maybe everybody else as well actually is concerned that it's fucking boring content is not my problem that is your yeah. problem my friend so content not a fan of scale i'm fucking sick of scale i'm sick of higher order and i'm sick of meta I'm oh yes yeah 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 so content pivot scale higher order and meta they can all get in the sea Yes, we need a, what was it? There was that wonderful uh, show, Room 101, where people uh, kind of shoved their hated things. They're all yeah, going need, in we, Room 101, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, one thing that you touched on just there, which is talking about some of the power that advertising and marketing has, and I've been thinking about this, uh, about how central marketing is to the public's good, right? So I think marketing can sometimes be seen as a bit of a dirty word, capitalist, capitalizing businesses, trying to make a profit blah blah but during the coronavirus outbreak that we've got at the moment industries deemed non-essential have been shutting down so people have been noticing a refocusing of public attention to important areas of life like health and family and connectedness and stuff but the way that i see it marketers are able to affect behavior change mm. in a way that brute force operational optimizing and well-meaning emotions can't on their own so Perfect example, the NHS has, a, I think the stats, nearly a half a million people have signed up to this volunteer to, yeah, to oh, yes, help them, yeah. which is amazing, amazing right? Yeah. Great campaign. But how much more could that effect have been amplified if every ounce of behavioral science and understanding uh, beautiful advertising and great copywriting and all the rest of it was harnessed? 
And that's, I think, this the fact that you, you're able to catalyze what is effective with a non-essential business. You know, no one's looking at advertisers or marketers and behavioral science guys and say, oh, for fuck's sake, we better keep the lights on. They're a set. They, like, they don't let them stop going to work. Um, and I think that this really ties back to what Rory said about alchemy to describe marketing's ability to literally create value and create change out of nothing. Um, yes. Yeah, so, so I think there's, you've got a couple of points, points there. There's the idea that if you want um, to reduce life-threatening behavior, tactics from behavioral science or psychology or advertising can be used. Um, one that I'm interested in at the moment is this idea of negative social proof. So it goes back to an idea of Robert Cialdini, where he says, if you make a transgressive behavior seem commonplace or an antisocial behavior seem commonplace, you remove a sense of transgression and it becomes more common still. Now, like all psychology experiments, he doesn't just argue this like a philosopher. He just takes a piece of logic and creates this smooth argument. What he does is go out and run tests to prove it. So the test is, goes to the Arizona Petrified Wood National Park, rigs up CCTV camera by a path and sprinkles bits of petrified wood along the path. Now, the reason he's done that is there is a problem in that park with lots of tourists stealing bits of petrified wood. So he wants to know how you can reduce that and where you might, by accident, increase that theft rate. So three scenarios. First scenario, no sign. So he's getting a kind of a base level of theft, and it's about 3%. Second scenario, he puts up a sign saying, don't steal, it's wrong. And theft rates drop by half to about 1.5%. And then in the third scenario, which I will come back to, this is what I'm worrying is happening now. He puts up a sign saying, 14 tonnes of wood have been stolen every year, and it's ruining the look of this park. <laughs> now, he then said, he says, the theft rates go from, remember, 3% was the baseline. They jumped to 7.9%. So in his words, <laughs> the climb promotion strategy. It's the worst campaign in history. Absolutely. Um, because he says, like, if you tell people that everyone else is doing this, what people think is, well, it can't be that bad. I'm a bit of a mug not to be doing it. You know, you remove this sense of transgression. It becomes more common still. If you then look at government advertising and sometimes charity advertising or a lot of social advertising, you see how regularly this happens. So Cialdini says it's the big mistake of government. When there are behaviours they don't want, they often inadvertently use negative social proof. They say, you know, loads of youths get students get drunk, loads of people are carrying knives, lots of people don't turn up for their doctor's appointment. All of Cialdini's work suggests that will exacerbate the situation, not solve it. So the danger is if you fixate on um, people not social distancing or uh, fixate on people who are stockpiling, the message that people take out is not, oh, they're very bad. I'm definitely not going to do it. They take out, well, if everyone else is ignoring the rules, they can't be that important. You know, yeah. we, we are a species that copy people. So I absolutely believe the application of behavioral science can solve or help solve some very important problems problems absolutely and the misapplication of it as well can potentially make it worse yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah that, that's completely true yeah um, there was that um that brilliant study that you put up about was it was it peru was it the peruvian tax where they created a lottery on the bottom of the receipts 
Oh, uh, Taiwan, I think. Ta- yes. Taiwanese, yeah, yeah. Taiwanese tax. So they wanted people to submit receipts in, didn't they? Wanted to make sure they kept a hold of them. So they crea- yes. created yeah. a lottery and the numbers were printed on the bottom of, of receipts. So everyone obviously kept them and they forced the supermarkets to give them to them and, yeah, and, yeah. and this sort of stuff. <clears throat> and you think, they turned well, the whole population into, in, into uh, you know, a policeman they were essentially enforcing for their own report. receipts yeah for something that it was would have previously been costly and all the other different ways that you could have gone about that and it is by far the the cheapest you know it, it requires it requires a printer i mean they were giving away they were giving away money for the lottery so it requires the money yeah. for the lottery but it, you know in real terms nothing compare that with having to uh, pay an entire division of people to enforce the fucking the receipt collection Yes. Uh, oh, absolutely. Thing, whatever it is. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think yeah. that's great. Oh, no, I love that Taiwanese example. I think um, I read about that first on a Dave Trop blog. So, yeah, it's a brilliant example. And there are other examples of lotteries being used um, by government. So I think the Swedish have a system where speed cameras both fine uh, drivers who are breaking the speed limit, but people who go past the speed camera below the uh, recommended level, they are entered into a draw. No way. That yeah, is yeah, yeah. so good. Do you know um, Kuhn Smets? Do you know who that is? Yes. Um, he, he's more a uh, Belgian guy into yep. organizational psychology. Yeah, lovely chap. Yeah, yeah fantastic guy. So I had him, on, had him on last year. Did you know about the Estonian police service and what they've been doing? Is this where people get... Is this where they? I think I might have read about this in a Rory Sutherland post. Where do you get pulled over and yeah, go into? You have to stay on the side of the road. So they they give people the choice between a very expensive fine. I think it's three hundred euros or something if you get caught speeding, or a half an hour wait. Yes, and um, it it just showed that the whole podcast that I did with him was about um, the the valuing of time, the how we perceive time from a behavioural economic standpoint. And um, ah. almo- almost fifty percent of people elected to pay this fine rather than wait half an hour, and that's yeah. so. It's so interesting because obviously, presumably, if you are caught speeding, it's probably because you have somewhere to be and you can do with being yeah. there quickly. Which means, if I said, "Hey, mate, would you sit by the side of this road for three hundred euros?" I, I don't think hey, David Beckham would probably do that. You know, there's no <laughs> amount of money that someone's got that's too much to not sit by the side of the road for three hundred yeah. euros, but. If you are running 20 minutes late to your daughter's dance recital or to a gym class or to get to a meeting or something like yeah. that, you're prepared to do it. I, I also wonder whether if um, I wonder if they take, take people's phones away because there's a lot of research into the idea that unoccupied weights are painful. Occupied weights are, you know, people don't seem to mind. So um, what I mean by that, there's a, there was a, report in the new york times about i think it was one of the it might have been houston airport and they were having lots of complaints about how long people had to wait to get their bags at the airport baggage carousel so what was happening was people would go through passport control or whatever uh they'd they'd walk a minute and then they'd wait seven minutes to get their bag so the first thing they did was spend loads of money just trying to make the system more efficient, you know, hiring more baggage handlers, speeding up the machines, whatever they did. And they managed to shave a minute off the time. But they saw very little reduction in complaints. 
The next thing they did was rather than try this kind of engineering technique, they tried a, a psychological technique, which was all around occupying people's time. So now what happened was as people left passport control, they were sent on this kind of circuitous walk around the airport for six minutes. <laughs> so, you know, they used all those kind of uh, guides to make sure people yeah, couldn't yeah, go yeah, yeah. into the carousel. So, yeah, they walk for six minutes, get to the carousel, then wait a minute, bag turns up and off they go. And when they did that, people's complaint level plummets because what people didn't like was standing staring at a carousel with nothing to do what they didn't mind was you know a little walk around in some blind effort to make it feel like you're so i think about this all the time when i'm driving i realize i know for an absolute fact that at a time when there's traffic i will tend to take a route which may potentially be both longer and um, longer both in terms of time and in terms of distance yeah. but one which will be less likely to be nose to tail even accounting for all of that yeah because yeah, yeah. i'm cognizant of the level of discomfort that i have when being in nose to tail traffic there's a little bit of effort involved especially if you drive an automatic car yeah you know yeah. if you're with cruise control automatic cars basically a go-kart you just sit on the motorway and you yeah, go yeah. um whereas i've got to use my foot i've got to think how far is that guy away from me oh fuck this is boring sat in traffic this sucks like you know i i have that but that's the same thing i just yes. i want to feel like i'm doing just, something yeah. even if i arrive 15 minutes later well, I wonder, there's, I wonder if there's also an element of the, one of the other theories about time is that people find an uncertain wait. Like, I don't know whether I'm going to wait zero minutes or 10 minutes. They find that much more irritating than someone saying, you will wait eight minutes. So certainty. I, was, it, Which, was it Rory? Was it Rory that did the. He talks about for Uber. Heath- no, was it oh. not the one? For, was it not the one for Heathrow? Which so people waiting to get into Heathrow, the audience will know. I use this. I must drop this all the time. Okay. So if it's mis uh, misaccredited to Rory, like one of those quotes that's come through the wrong way, yeah. get the he, Churchill he, slide he, or whatever it's called. Churchill, he yeah. is, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything that's cool gets eventually attributed <laughs> to Rory or Dave Trot. Um, yeah. <clears throat> uh, waiting to get into the security scanners at Heathrow, they were struggling. They looked at operationals. Uh, fixes for it and instead of that they just put up signs saying 45 minutes from this point 30 minutes from this point 15 minutes from this point and it the the number of complaints Ah, plummeted let's link this back to coronavirus so um boris johnson his announcement when he said we are going to be under quarantine we are going to be under lockdown you are not to leave the house except for these things and i'm thinking to myself he's gonna have to say a time frame he has to yes. give a time frame because if well, he just has an open-ended, there is no time frame in this, and it was really cleverly worded the way that he said it, he said that we will review this after three weeks. So in that case, probably the people to learn from are Disney. So firstly, they do, when well, I hadn't heard about Heathrow, so I don't know who that to be attributed back to, but what Disney do is not only do they give you, you know, on um, like Disneyland Paris or wherever, as you go to the ride, it says... 45 minute wait or hour wait so for, they make the wait certain and therefore less painful the second thing that they do very cleverly is they overestimate the wait time so if they put up they think it's an hour what they really think is it's 50 minutes so when you get to the end you're like oh it only took 50 minutes i've saved i've saved 10 minutes <laughs> on, so, on an amount of time that they made you wait yeah which is a, yeah, no one whereas if they'd said oh it's going to be 40 minutes you'd have been really annoyed so maybe there is a technique there uh 
and because it, it's the end that's particularly important there's a there's a whole body of ideas called the peak end rule which is the two moments we're disproportionately likely to remember from experience are the height of either the worst thing or the bad thing the peak uh and the end the final moment so ending the cue on that positive realization that this was quicker than you'd expected again is another very very positive thing that so peak end rule there, there could so be a cool. yeah, it's, 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 it's wonderful applications of it you know you start seeing um uh restaurants particular hotels coming up with ways of making those final moments of the experience very positive so because normally if you just leave it as per the norm the end of the meal the end of the stay is normally the the, the worst part you know you get the bill and shuffle out into the cold world there are restaurants like flat iron where they give you this tiny little pair of steak knives as your uh if you, if you get your bill and then as you wander out you're going to hand those steak knives in and they give you a little free ice cream so you know people end on a high and unexpected uh, uh, benefit so the, yeah the, 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 there's lots of applications of that pecan rule to anyone who's trying to custom, make a customer experience because most people making a customer experience are fixated on making a good impression at the beginning important but what you should also do is to give as much time energy and effort into thinking how do you how do you end on a high wasn't there a study done on people having endoscopies oh colonoscopies. yeah that's the that's the original experiment for kahneman and radelmeyer who came up with the idea of the peak end rule do you yeah. know that yes yeah, so oh, um, can you tell me because i've been misquoting this for the last two and a half years and i'd really like to get it straightened out uh well, or I've been misquoting it. I, I went for about a year with the wrong. Uh, I was talking about the principal agent. But I probably shouldn't admit this. Uh, the principal agent problem, and I had a picture of Stephen Ross who came up with the idea. And it was only after about a year uh, that I found out it was completely the wrong Stephen Ross. Rory so, Sutherland was it? Rory Sutherland? <laughs> yeah, no, I no, thought it was. It was someone called Stephen Ross, but I think he was like. A, so know, you've just got some teller. fellow like Stephen Ross, <laughs> yeah, yeah, jazz, yeah. jazz singer in New York yeah, City yeah. or something. And I'm standing there blathering on um anyway uh sorry the yeah i think what happened in that kahneman and radelmeyer experiment they get 600 odd genuine colonoscopy patients so a 15 minute painful medical procedure and all those patients are given a handheld monitor and this monitor buzzes every 15 minutes and when it buzzes there's a dial on the monitor oh sorry the, the, the little handheld thingy uh there's a dial that the patients have to turn saying zero, no pain at all, to 10, excruciating pain. So the psychologists get 15 uh, experiencing self ratings. And by experiencing they self, they mean in-moment ratings, 15 ratings. Then after the operation, as the patient is leaving the hospital, they stop the patient and ask them to reflect back on the operation. It's an entirety and say how bad it was. Same scale, zero to 10. They then go and find those patients a month later, same question, rate the operation. So now they've got 15 ratings from the experiencing self, those in-moment ratings, and two remembering self ratings, so you know, post-operation uh, reflections. The, and the expectation before they did the experiment was the number should correlate reasonably well, but that's not what they found. There was only a kind of a loose correlation. What correlated far better were two moments in particular in the operation. So the peak experience, so for colonoscopy, the moment of most pain, and then the final moment of that colonoscopy. So 
what they argued was that it's the peak and the end moment that are disproportionately likely to be remembered. And then in their follow-up study, what they do is they get more patients going for colonoscopies, randomize them into two groups. Some get the standard 15-minute operation, which is really painful because this probe is being moved around inside them. The other group, exactly the same 15 minutes, and then the surgeon is instructed to leave his probe or her probe in the patient perfectly still. So it, it's there's minor discomfort for that extra two minutes, not the significant pain. Now, from a logical point of view, they've just added on in that second version two extra minutes of mild pain. It should be worse. It's got 15 minutes of bad pain, two minutes of minor pain. But just as the peak end rule suggests, because the final moment is less painful, people, when they reflected back, remembered that operation as less painful. And most importantly, they were about 10% more likely to turn up for follow-up appointments. So, yeah, absolutely. The, the, you know, that colonoscopy study in very controlled circumstances, in life or death circumstances potentially, show how important it is to, to shape people's final moment of the experience. And that is... That's literally life-changing, you know, for some people. The, the power of understanding our motivations. And also, it shows as well, I'm reading a lot of evolutionary psychology, most of it to do with sort of uh, mating and dating at the, at the moment. But even with that, the fact that we are so at the mercy of the ways that our brains work, our cognitive biases, our predispositions, our prejudices against ourselves and others, our existing thought patterns, all of this stuff. And um, it's, I think it's why I find it just endlessly interesting, the bottomlessly fascinating stuff to be able to look under the hood and actually see what's going on. And then, then you can go, actually, we can do this thing, which is completely counterintuitive to make this, this colonoscopy two minutes longer. Um, I, I remember, I remember reading, I think someone had interpreted that and had a quote tweeted it with something to the effect of, um, uh, the most altruistic and caring thing you can do for your child if they're going through uh, a pediatric surgery is to ask the surgeon to extend the length of the surgery just a little bit to bring them back down to to do this exact. So the final moments, yeah. yeah, especially when that person's got, you know they have some kind of choice about going back again. It could, yeah. could be hugely important. Well, if the kid doesn't um, really want to be scared for hospital for the rest of their life, you know, imagine you got this oh, first course, very yeah. traumatic yeah. experience at the dentist's or something like that. You know, if you can use this peak end experience module and you can plug that in, you can shape a child's behaviour toward dentist and or doctor for the remaining 70, 80, 90 years of their life. Yeah, yes. And, and, the, and the brilliant thing, well, can we go back to the bit about I love about behavioural science, is it's not argued from first principles. People aren't ever, though they should never be saying, this definitely works, this is definitely true. But they've given you, first of all, a bit of robust evidence through their test and control. But every situation is different. The great thing is if you're a dentist, well, you can recreate that experiment. Why not test it for your 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 set of patients in your specific um, area yeah. and see if it works? And you could make, a, as you say, you can make a huge difference. Absolutely. I, I want to talk about the uh, Ogilvy gloves. Ah, yes. Thing. Yes, great idea. Um, so this, I think, goes back to that idea we had earlier on, which is behavioural science in and of itself is is great, but where it gets brilliant is when you combine brilliant behavioral insight with a wonderful piece of creative thinking 
So Ogilvy Consult or Ogilvy Change um, were working with a factory where people were dealing with dangerous equipment. And there's an idea called, slightly controversial idea called risk homeostasis. And I think it's controversial because it was, it was slightly exaggerated. I think it has, there's evidence that maybe people exaggerated the impact, but it's still, still there. Um, and it, the initial studies were done on, I think it was anti it ABS brakes or anti-lock brakes. <laughs> and when taxi drivers, I think in Germany, had um, these improved brakes added, what they saw was a much lower decrease in, in accidents than they expected. The argument being, when someone is given a safety mechanism, they could take all the benefit of that safety mechanism as in lower uh, injury, mm. but actually people sometimes take the benefit as keeping the injury level the same and then driving faster. <laughs> so often safety measures don't have the impact you would want. So that's a problem with people going to work with sores, every, you know, giant metal saws every day because they might become a bit blasé about them and if even if you add in safety um equipment they might then become a bit more um reckless so what ogilvy did was take this idea of risk homeostasis and with a wonderful leap of imagination they gave the uh, workers their gloves you know black gloves and then it would have a you know a skeleton painted on the on the glove and it was a constant reminder of their their vulnerability. And when in the tracking, they showed that people do indeed feel more vulnerable when they're when they're wearing these gloves. So that to me has been one of the nicest uh, applications of behavioural science because it's this fusion of great behavioural science insight, but on top of it, a wonderful leap of creative imagination. It's a perfect example as well of the alchemy analogy that I alluded to earlier on where it is creating behavior change slash value slash pick your metric of what the end goal is out of nothing you know imagine yes. <clears throat> imagine them having to go back to the people that make industrial band saws and saying right guys I need you to come up with a special system that can drop the the saw away uh, uh, immediately release the mechanism if a mad yes. person's finger gets put in can we have some special electrodes that run through the blade to feel if it touches flesh and if it gets wet or so you're just like oh my god like because there are systems i know that there are systems fail safe systems in place like that but you think how much is I mean, probably poundland they've probably got <laughs> if you stock up at, yeah. around about halloween you'll be able to get loads of those yes. of those gloves and, and uh, there's a lovely argument from rory sutherland that it's it's tip this differential in this difference in cost is typical because his argument is because businesses normally have this kind of engineering logical rational mindset they've been using that for years and years all the easy cheap wins have been found already and now it's getting you know diminishing returns and it's getting harder and more expensive to come up with those improvements because businesses have tended to ignore these psychological wins there are loads of them like that glove example that you can do at very very low cost to have a remarkable return so i think his book alchemy is wonderfully titled because it it captures this sense of creating value from no or very little expenditure yeah it it really is i think as well the um the thing that i keep coming back to when we talk about this is the effort which is required by companies to do the hard thing 
You know, what, what, one of the things that have been a common theme in both our conversations that we've had, and if you haven't already gone and heard my first episode with Richard, it's, it's just as good as this. So go back and listen. It'll be linked in the show notes below. Um, it, when people have to go do the hard thing and create this novelty, create with th- these new ideas, it is the hard thing in the same way as changing your habit as a normal person is a hard thing. So you can continue to maybe try and eat a little bit less junk food, but beginning a gym program is real hard, right? That's outside of the box thinking. We've greased this groove of our standard operating procedures. We spoke about the lineage, the existing adverts that the company's always gone for, the norms that are within, and even take that out further, within an industry, we've got norms that are industry-wide as well. All these different ways that people have greased existing grooves, and yet... The low-hanging fruit has been has already been picked up off the ground. You're getting diminishing returns with rinsing existing marketing plans or with trying to further optimize the logistics of your lean Kaizen production yeah. thing, whatever it yeah. is, you know, like all the different things. Uh, and, and it does, it requires somebody to come in and really reframe everything, right? It's, look, we've tried you eating a little bit less chocolate there's now no chocolate left in the house and you go into the gym at six o'clock every morning. That's, that's what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think it's, um, oh, I don't know. I, I think, uh, it's a, the, the whole outcome approach is a lovely analogy for behavioral science and, it, and its strengths. Cool. Um, I want to, before we, before mm. we finish yes. up, I, I yeah. don't want to use the C word too much, the new C word, which is COVID. Oh yeah, 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 um, yeah. But I wanted to, um, talk about some innovative strategies or some interesting adverts that you've seen or over the last couple of weeks. Obviously, it's been a, a time where people have been increasingly releasing stuff. So I've got a couple of things uh, that I like that have come out of, you know, it's a terrible global pandemic, which is ravaging health and economy in equal measure. Um, but we have to focus on the positives because it's pointless focusing on the negatives. And some of the best things for me that have come out of COVID-19 so far has been uh, WhatsApp group chats have never been as anti-fragile as right now. Like the quality, because everyone's yeah. got nothing to do other than search for yeah. meme, search yeah. for memes and take a yes. look out of each other. So that's been yeah. fantastic. Um, Pornhub giving everybody in Italy and now I think the UK uh, free access to premium, which is low key from Pornhub them saying we are a public service which from a signaling perspective is unbelievable we are so important that we're going to give you during a time of crisis we know that you need this which is just like it's so clever it's beyond beyond clever right um patrick stewart reading a sonnet a day have you seen this (laughs) (laughs) patrick stewart stewart from star trek reads a sonnet a day on his twitter that's it's encapsulated in the title. Yeah. Um, uh, home workouts. I think the number of people that have been giving away. I've got some oh, buddies yeah. built up north. Uh, a propane fitness. Uh, Ryan Fisher from uh, CrossFit Chalk in America. All been just throwing out like top level, top 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 level programming for free. The, I mean, yeah, there's you can get bored of doing burpees in your living room, but like this is keeping it as exciting as you can get, and I think that's been really good. And um. I've noticed a, a massive, great, a sense of social unity as well. You know, like even just in my house, I two two housemates. I don't think we've ever asked each other how they're doing as much. And it's not it's not got anything at all to do with. I'm not worried about either of them. They're both like in their young twenties, so they're essentially made of rubber and magic. You could throw them off yeah. the wall and they'd be fine. <laughs> yeah. um, but 
hey man, how are you? How's, yeah, how's work? Oh, this is a good, ah, I did this podcast last night. Oh, how was it? You know, it's just like everything, investment in everyone's been turned up by, by sort of 20, 30%. I think, you know, walking past my neighbours during my one, my one allocated outdoor trip of the day, uh, walking past my neighbours and, hey, how are you? Some, uh, old gentleman the other day said as i walked past in shorts he said hi sonna i'd be wearing shorts too if i had legs like yours and i was like oh, <laughs> thank you strange man um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah that's that's some of the things that i've enjoyed that have come out of it but i wondered if you'd yeah. seen any campaigns or or any changes or anything that yeah. you've enjoyed uh, that guinness adverts one. Oh yeah so i mean the guinness ad's beautiful uh, absolutely beautiful it's wonderfully designed very very clever and i think will bring a lot of amusement to people whether it changes behavior is a very different thing uh but that's a, kind of a separate point maybe um i think your point of what's interesting is there's a lovely gk cheston phrase along the idea of uh, the way to love every anything is to realize it might be lost and perhaps when you have you know social contacts or most of social contacts taken away, you realise how precious it is. So yeah, I think that that, that that's a, I think a key point. The one I was going to mention, and I think is the flip side of all those positive stories you've said, is in the Sunday Times there was talk about um, one of the supermarkets raising their their prices, and I think brands have got to be very very careful about transgressing what are seen as fairness norms. So there is a study done by a guy called uh, Werner Guth back in 1982 um, called The Ultimatum Game. And Guth, who was at the University of Cologne, comes up with this wonderfully simple setup. Two people never meet each other. They don't know each other. One is the proposer. One is the receiver. They're given a small amount of money. Well, the proposer is given a small amount of money, say a tenner. And uh, the proposer is told, split that money between you and the receiver as you think fit. And they get to split the money. So it could be 50-50. It could be 80-20 in their favor. And then the receiver has two options. Accept the split as has been given. There's no negotiation. Mm. Accept the split or refuse it and both parties get nothing. Now, before Guth did these experiments, the standard economic belief was that a receiver would accept pretty much anything. You know, you've been given a tenner, you only offer me one pound, you keep nine. Logically, I should just keep the pound because I'm worse off if I don't. But what happens is if the offer is a blow about 20%, more than half of people will refuse it. They would rather both people got nothing <laughs> and the unfair behaviour was punished than a small amount of cash. So it's an argument that people will go to quite big lengths, even at a cost themselves, to punish unfair behavior. Now, there's other experiments by Kahneman where he shows that people taking advantage uh, to push up their prices in times of crisis are definitely seen as unfair. So simple thought experiment. He says, imagine there's a, um, a hardware store that sells snow shovels for 15 quid, mm -hmm. $15 it would be, it's Canada. Um, there's a big snowstorm. They push up to the price to $20. Is that fair? And I think it's 82% of people say that's not fair, not fair. So what I would caution to brands is don't try and make a quick buck out of people's desperation and need. 
if you are caught pushing up your prices, even if it's justifiable as a way of managing demand or supposedly justifiable from standard economics, don't do that because it will be seen as unfair and people will go to quite big lengths to to, to, to punish it. I've noticed a severe uplift in brands leveraging social goodwill over the, you know, the amount of this is, the pay, paywalls are being removed. I don't know whether the spectators Free coffees. Got, yeah. Oh, they talked about it, didn't they? Yeah, Did the they free coffees to the NH. Oh, I, I don't know. I saw Rory Southern's tweet about they should do it and uh, Fraser Nelson's response. Maybe that was uh, maybe that was all that I saw as well. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. Um, uh, they the goodwill without doing it. Um, the, the NHS, uh, I think Cafe Nero and Pret originally were giving them free coffees, weren't free coffees, they? Yeah. Oh, my, um, free masks, yeah, wonderful. My best friend, Yusuf, he, uh, he is a, a first-year doctor now working in intensive care the immediate missions and he said that he felt really good that after working like two days on two nights on of 14 hours each he was um told that nhs staff were going to get 20 percent off at pizza express which is not good <laughs> yeah i mean 20 percent off is just basically a kind of sales promotion that's it's a, yeah, shut that's it's shut now you yeah. can't yeah, go yeah, in yeah, yeah, to yeah. take you 20 percent so Maybe you can cut your coupon out and keep it for afterwards yeah, yeah. the um I had a point here about brands weaponizing goodwill at the moment, which which it definitely feels to me like there is a little bit of going on at the moment. The bottom so, line, the company. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was going to say you mentioned that word that you hate, mm. and I might have said uh, a year ago, brand purpose. And one of the reasons I always hate that phrase was it. it it was if people wanted the plaudits for moral ethical behaviour without the hard work of actually doing moral ethical behaviour. <laughs> we just want to look so, like we're doing moral ethical behaviour, yeah, okay? Yeah, an ad which talks about our, our virtue. At least we're now in a situation where there is a cost being attached, you know, giving everyone free coffee or Facebook giving $100 million of ads away. At least they are putting their money where their mouth is. So... Yes, there might be, you know, positively we could call it enlightened self-interest. Uh, you know, I would much rather that than the previous situation of, you know, Gillette ads where it's just posturing, not action. I love it. Look, Richard, I, I literally could keep this going yeah. on all afternoon. So I'm going to... I'm going to hassle you to come back on. The Choice Factory, your book, will be linked in the show notes below. Astro 10, your uh, company, will also be linked. What else should people check out? Other, other than your amazing Twitter, actually. What are you on Twitter? Uh, at R. Shotten. So Shotten is S-H-O-T-T-O-N. And well, my, so the only other thing is keep an eye out. So I've started doing some of the research for the – hasn't got a name yet, but you know, Choice Factory 2. So hopefully – uh, early next year, have a second book out. Well, I mean, you've got nothing else to do at the moment, right? I know, exactly. Well, that's it. Yeah. Business, yeah. Well, it's, it's getting better now. Yeah. Yes. Last week, it was a bit very, very bleak. But, I get it. Yeah. Uh, you you said before we started, in nine months' time, a lot of babies and a lot of books happening, you reckon? Yeah. 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 Not for me. Yeah. Exactly. If you get pregnant yeah. in the next nine months, Rishi, it's going to be very strange. Uh, look, it, it's. You're phenomenal to have on. I really, really love having you here, and I can't wait to get you back. Choice Factory, uh, Richard's Instagram, his Twitter, and the uh, link to Astro 10, his company, will be in the show notes below. If you've got any questions, comments, or feedback, you know where to go. Get at me at Chris Will X wherever you follow me. Like, share, and subscribe if you're new here. 
Thank you for tuning in. But for now, Richard, thank you so much, man. Fantastic. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend. It would make me very happy indeed. Don't forget, if you've got any questions or comments or feedback, feel free to message me at Chris Willex on all social media. But for now, goodbye, friends. <laughs>